You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Welcome to another episode of Discover Ag, brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And every week we are bringing you the top stories in the ag and food space that you need to know. So welcome back today, Discos. We have a very special episode. We not only have our normal three articles, but we also have one of our interviews. Today, we are going to be interviewing a company called Hudek, and we're going to be interviewing their vice president of technology, uh, Jeremy Javers. And so a little bit about Hudek uh, in this interview I thought was fascinating is how involved they were in all different aspects of our food system, all the way from what we feed our cows to what we feed our pets to what we even feed fish, and then even into the products that we see and know and love at the grocery store. Yeah, I think one thing we didn't intentionally realize we were doing when we started these mini interviews was bringing on people that are really innovative in the food space. And to me, that was what Hudek is like. So if you're interested in how the food space is evolving and kind of the future of the food space, this is definitely an article to tune into because I think they're um, doing really neat things that I was very unaware of. Yeah, it was really mind-blowing, like I said, uh, all the different aspects that they were involved in. And we learned a lot about fermentation beyond just uh, beer and yogurt and so many other things. So stay tuned for that uh, interview at the end of today's articles. So we're back from our exciting week in Lubbock together, which we're going to be also bringing to you guys in a future episode. But I cannot stop kind of replaying that in-person conversation we had down there at Texas Tech. Yeah, it was such a great conversation and... It really went in a direction I didn't expect. I don't want to get more into it because we're going to be like bringing it Mm -hmm. to the podcast. But I loved the whole thing. It was fun actually being like, I know Lubbock is not my like hometown, but it was fun giving a speech and talking with people that are other producers that are so close to where we're at. And we got to talk with a cotton producer and um, a wine producer. So I feel like we're bringing a lot of wine content to the podcast suddenly. I know. Shout out to our uh, sponsors, Enchantment Vineyards. You guys code DISCOVER20. Yeah, we're going to both be bringing some content, I think, this week and next week from them, which I'm really excited about. I also have to say, can I just, I'm so happy we are back recording on our normal day. (laughs) I finally know what day of the week it is. I feel like I am like back in my space last week without recording and just everything being like different from the week before. I had no idea what was going on or where we were at in the day of the week. And now I just feel so grounded back in our routine. The discos are a part of us. I really are. It is integral into into our uh, schedule and lifestyle at this point. I have been thinking about downloading the app Be Real. I think I'm behind the fad, but I my sister Why? made me be a part of her Be Real, and now I'm like kind of intrigued by it. Okay, oh. well, clearly you are out on it. I was hoping maybe you'd say, <laughs> no, like, you'd I didn't say anything. Downloaded I did it. not say anything. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like I'm getting old and I'm falling behind the times and I need to download the new app to stay cool and relevant, Natalie. I don't think going on the new cool and relevant app as the old millennial will make you feel young and cool. It might actually have the opposite effect. So just be careful. I am having a birthday this week and I'm turning 35 and I feel like hitting one of I feel like anytime you hit a a decade or a half a decade, like it feels a little older because it's like, okay, now I'm in my mid thirties. Like I'm not in my early thirties anymore. So maybe I'm going through a midlife crisis and that is going to be be real. So bear with me if I decide to do that, you guys. I texted your husband to get ideas for your birthday present 
and oh, he was absolutely say? zero help. I was going to say. <laughs> There's no way he even had a slightest clue of what to get me. <laughs> no clue. Well, I'm sorry. You might have to help him out. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. actually was like, actually, do you have any ideas for me while we're talking? <laughs> yeah, while we're talking, what a star said we want. No, the other day I sent him a link of I want to get an infrared mask to wear. <laughs> I'm really aging myself here. I'm really trying to cut down on fine line and wrinkles. And he's she's literally be doing her be real shots in her red like, infrared <laughs> red mask. Infrared. Um, and he was like, birthday question mark. And I was like, yes, this is what I want for my birthday. Just order it. Like it is right here on a silver platter, order it, wrap it and send it to me. Uh, That's funny. I feel like there are two types of relationships and ours is similar to that. I definitely just tell Luke what I want. I don't need the surprise development, but like gift giving is actually very low on my love language barometer. I think it's my last one actually when I took the test. And so I don't need the element of surprise. I don't need gifts all the time. I'm just... If I want something, I'll send it, get it. Like just, it's clean and simple, you know? I would just rather not be surprised and get what I want than be surprised and it not be what I want. <laughs> just, there are two There's kinds nothing of surprises worse in worse than having to pretend that you love a gift. You're like, oh, thank you. Thank so you. Much. It's just <laughs> what I wanted, even though I've never seen it before. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, gratitude. Practice gratitude. Gratitude. I know. That's – I was watching someone – What? one of the discos sent in a uh, reel this morning about um, gratitude and gratitude, like journaling and stuff. And I was like, I don't know if that was like a dig at us. Like yeah, that- <laughs> <laughs> or if it was just like, oh, you guys seem like you're into this kind of thing. You might be into this too. I'm going to take it as the latter uh, and go with it. Oh. Okay, before getting into our articles, we want to thank our uh, main sponsor, Case IH. We are so thankful for their sponsorship of Discover Ag. They have been with us for a long time now, and we are just so grateful. Uh, Case IH isn't just built by farmers. It's sold, supported, and serviced by them, too. The men and women at your local Case IH dealerships understand what it takes to overcome the challenges of farming because they do it every day, just like you, which means they're the right people to help you find the equipment you need. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to learn more. More. Case IH is built by farmers. And I will give a shout out to our local dealership. Daniel has been in contact with them um, a lot recently. And I just, it's so nice to be able to call your dealership, like your local Case IH dealership. And it's like a friend, you know, like they know you, they know your operation, they know what you need. And um, I just think that's one of my favorite things about working with Case IH is actually our local dealership is incredible. All right, moving into the first article to discover this week. Headline, a California wine company had to destroy 2,000 bottles of wine after illegally aging them at the bottom of the ocean. Officials call the wine not fit for human consumption. And I actually, before we dive into discussion about this, want to play a little video from their website for you guys because um, I think this is where we should kick it off with their marketing. The ocean. Nature's ideal cellar, perfect temperature. There is no light, no oxygen. The ocean's steady current slowly turns the wine into bottles. The only sound is the song of the whales in the distant blue. Thanks for that, Natalie. What accent was that? I don't know, actually, but I just loved how he was like, the only sound is the sound of the whales in the distant blue. I had to roll my eyes a little bit during marketing that part. Geni- I mean, the whole thing is marketing genius. So, really? This, oh, I think so. 
I I, like my very first thing is I have to ask whose idea was this? Like, are we asking for wine to be fermented on the bottom of the ocean? Like, I don't know. It kind of like grossed me out. It was like the bottles are like covered in, you know, like sea creatures and crustaceans. And I was like, (laughs) no, thank you. I will just take my wine in a wine cellar. This is so funny because I think the bottles are beautiful. I like I can see why people would buy this bottle. Uh, the whole thing is like beyond me. It also sounds so sketchy. Like the more I read, the more I'm like, I am absolutely not buying wine from you. Like you sound so sketchy. Like the company was selling wine without a business license. They didn't have yeah. an alcohol license. Like we can get into all of that. But I was like, I don't trust you to help get me drunk. I'm sorry. I this it's a no for me. So yes, getting into it, this company is called Ocean Fathoms. And as you can see, they are essentially saying that uh, specifically the Santa Barbara Channel is the perfect environment for aging its wines. And so what they did was they, up into the point of the aging, you know, their vineyard, I would say is probably comparable to every other vineyard, but instead they dropped their crates full of the wine bottles to the bottom of the ocean, left them for 12 months, and that's how they had the wine fermented. Yeah, that perfect. Fermented, right? I think fermented's right. Aged. 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 Uh, We're going to use aged. That perfect environment sure as heck turned into an illegal one when they did Mm -hmm. not get the permits to be able to do that. Yeah. So the company's owners never received, like you said, proper permits from the California Coastal Commission or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, So it was very illegal what they did. Um, According to the Santa Barbara County District Attorney, the wines would be considered, quote, adultered and not fit for human consumption, according to the USDA Food and Drug Administration, which is a problem because they were selling them for over $500 each. Yeah, they also were not paying taxes on those $500 bottles. Speaking of taxes, apparently no one was out there measuring their office space because they (laughs) were selling things and not collecting any taxes. I still laugh that they claim it's like a superior product. Like, I'm just like, what makes it superior? Like, I kept asking over and over again, like, what makes it the perfect environment? Who, like, who is sending wine down to the bottom of the ocean and then being like, this is the perfect environment? Like, are they testing it? Like, why would it be so perfect? Besides, of course, the whales making beautiful sounds to help the wine age. No, that's the whole point. That's why I said this is like marketing 101 because there is nothing different about these bottles or nothing better except for I do think they are very beautiful bottles, which we can put some images on this Discover Stories. But it's just the way they're presenting it to the consumer, which puts you and I on our soapbox of like food labels, green marketing, and how we're presenting ourselves and differentiating our products from other ones when necessarily it's pretty misleading to the consumer at the end of the day. Something else I laughed about is the Bureau of Alcoholic Beverage and Control is the Bureau of ABC. (laughs) I just was like, that seems like a funny acronym for an alcoholic beverage company. But yes, they had to destroy the 2,000 bottles of wine. And that was part of their like plea agreement so that they could ensure they wouldn't try to like go and sell them on the black market or something, basically. Uh, And I don't know, even that was kind of like greenwash. They were like, the bottles are recycled. And I I just felt, yeah, it felt very PR-y to me. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they had to part of the plea agreement was destroying the wine. I thought it was funny that they're like, we'll be back, though. We're very hopeful to continue. We think Ocean Fathoms can return and we'll get back to aging our wines in the ocean. 
quote, with the proper permits this time. I was like, got to give it to these guys. They are. They are not giving up. They pled guilty to three misdemeanors for illegally discharging material into U.S. waters, selling alcohol without a license, aiding and embedding investor fraud was also on that list of things. They have to pay back all of their investors. But yeah, they were like, okay, once we wrap up, you know, we're going to just tie this up a little bit and then we'll be back. And I just was like, yeah, they are. They're not going to give up. Three misdemeanors later, they are not giving up. I still can't believe you don't think the bottles are neat. I think I've maybe become a little cynical to marketing tactics at this point that I'm just like, this is what we're doing to sell good wine. Like, and, and I think the more we've been learning about wine, like whether it's from Enchantment or our interview coming up, like I'm like, good wine comes from great soil, not from aging at the bottom of the ocean. So I don't know. I just think I've, maybe I'm just cynical at this point. I just mean the, the look of them. Like they have all the different like flora and fauna from the ocean that like naturally it's like I feel like I'm getting a little piece of like the Titanic brought up from like the ocean floor <laughs> like it's so cool they're so different and they're very they'd be unique every single bottle be one of a kind because the designs of what's attaching to them I feel like as like Mrs. She Seashell Collector like Susie Seashells over there how are you not like this is a beautiful bottle yeah, I mean, I'm sure my kids would love to collect them, add them to their seashell <laughs> You're like, collection. We collect mommy's wine bottles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just imagine how all well that's going to go over at like the next play date. Uh, but no, I um, I guess I'm just like they don't fit in a wine cellar. They're not going to fit in like my case. I don't know. I guess I'm just not getting behind it. I'm sorry. You should share a picture to the Discover Stories I this will. week, and that way the discos can weigh in. I mean, sure, it's cool. I guess it would like sit out on your counter and be like a discussion piece. I just, um, I think I'm. I'm just still doubting that the wine inside it tastes good. I, to me, that's more important than the bottle. And I just don't know that I think it would taste good at the end of that. Yeah, no, I get that. Like functionality of wine yeah. <laughs> versus decor of wine. Uh, some crazy facts about California wine that we actually learned last week. And then I started deep diving it, getting ready for this article. That is, if you live in California, you cannot order wine online from other states, which is kind of a bummer. California has some crazy regulations and laws to ensure that people are buying California wine, which it's working because California produces 90% of the United States wine. Yeah, this is a conversation we actually had with one of the panelists we were interviewing last week at Lubbock because he was um, like a fifth generation cotton farmer, but he had just diversified into growing vineyards. And he actually had a very successful like in-person full on venue. And he was talking to us about kind of the regulations um, and things they're up against as a Texas like wine producer. And I thought it was so interesting because I also had no idea about like California's um, kind of like domination over the, the wine industry. Yeah, it's really kind of crazy. Wineries and vineyards in California are the second most popular tourist destination after Disneyland. So people are coming to California to drink wine and go see the vineyards. Uh, Another fun fact that's kind of like economic that I thought was kind of crazy. 50 years ago, you could buy an acre of land in Napa for about $1,000. Just recently, an acre of land sold for $1 million. Talk about an return on your investment. All right. Well, that kind of wraps me up. But I will say, if you are interested in the wine conversation, we have, like I said, a lot more wine to come. The conversation in Lubbock wasn't necessarily like totally focused on like wine and grape growing, um, but it was still just a interesting conversation about like the economics that like a winery can play in uh, a community in a town. And then we will be interviewing Enchantment Vineyards, um, which is a woman founded and woman owned vineyard uh, here in my hometown. And we are going to be then diving into like 
what you should look for when you're buying wine, all the things like we need to know about wine and what makes wine good. And until then, if you want to buy some of Enchantment Vineyards wines, um, you can use our code DISCOVER20. So today's episode is brought to you by Ringer's Western Wear. It is our favorite Australian Western Wear brand. I actually had a cold morning the other day, which I know is a relative term, but I put on uh, the Ringer's jacket you gave me, which is in our summer, like it's one of our summer pinks, very like dusty rose. And it made me slightly excited for the cooler temperatures to be able to bust out some of my cooler temperature ringers wear and kind of put away some of the summer stuff and um, embrace fall a little more. I actually just got my jeans in and I'm going to be wearing those this week and I'm actually going to be sharing some of my stories as well. So I am really excited about my winter ringers wear. I was scrolling through my camera roll looking for a certain photo and I came across the photo shoot I did in that pink jacket and I was like, oh, darn it. I wish I wouldn't give that to Tara. <laughs> I did love that ringer's jacket, but it was a size too small, which brings me to what I actually really want to talk to you guys about during this plug, because I get continually asked about sizing for ringers. And I think it's really important to note. So what I have learned is that for me, I am about a U.S. Sm uh, small to medium. That translates to a ringer's eight to 10. So if I want something fitted, I wear a size eight in ringers. And if I want it kind of more loose and relaxed, I wear a size 10 in ringers. And so for me, I feel like that is kind of like the small medium in US sizing. So hopefully that helps some people out because like Tara said, they do have some really awesome um, Western wear apparel for the whole family. My whole family is clothed in ringers. Luke, it is the only t-shirts and long sleeve shirts he wants to wear anymore. He loves the fit. He loves the quality. He has so many hanging in his closet. Uh, Tad has a bunch and I have all my littles in it too. I actually just put on a pair of really nice thick sweats on um, Rue this morning. And so I do feel like they have really high quality products. I think they have really cute stuff that's like different from what you would see, you know, maybe with some other Western stores here in the US. So please go check out Ringers, you guys. Use our code DISCOVER um, and get clothes for the, for the fall, upcoming fall and winter seasons. And we will link their website. It is a US website. I know we said they're Australian based, but they have a US website as well. We will link that in our show notes and use that code DISCOVER. All right. The second article you guys need to discover this week titled the best food themed Halloween costumes for a delicious spooky season. Fall is just around the corner. The smell of cinnamon is sneaking into the air and our sweaters are patiently waiting to be worn in our closets. Just as fall creeps up on us, so does the inevitable battle of trying to find the perfect Halloween costume. I mean, this episode is coming out the Thursday before like Halloween weekend. Halloween's weird this year. It's on a Tuesday. So it's like, are you celebrating on the weekend? Are you celebrating on Tuesday? So I thought this would be a fun article to bring to the discos. And then I read it. And I was a little disappointed. It was very boring. I was expecting some exciting things, things I hadn't thought of. And it was kind of like womp womp. Oh, it was terrible. I wrote, this is a poor man's attempt at fun and creativity. Nothing was inspiring about it. We had to basically take this into our own hands. We are going to bring you some fun and creative food-themed Halloween costumes for you guys. But I was like, shame on Apple. This is really what you're putting out into the world for us to inspire creativity and excitement at Halloween. It was so womp womp. Yeah. I feel like now not only do we have to bring the news, we have to like create the create news. Create the news. <laughs> we are doing it out here, doing it all. Doing the mostest. <laughs> I actually shared this week on my Instagram uh, my Halloween costumes over the years, and it was funny. Everyone's favorite one was Finding Nemo, where I was Darla, um, which was, you know, no surprise when I was like the goofy character, which made me laugh. So some of the ones I was expecting were like mac and cheese, salt and pepper, peanut butter and jelly. And they, I think they had mac and cheese, but I was even surprised. I was like, you don't have peanut butter and jelly? Like everyone does peanut butter and jelly. Do you remember what their opening one was? Did you see this? No. Their number one 
costume that they suggested was pizza, which I was like, oh, okay, I'm for it. The girl had a flag on top of her head that said plant-based. And I was like, who is eating pizza thinking, yes, plant-based? Like, the main ingredient on pizza is cheese. It was terrible. The second one was spaghetti and meatballs. And I did think that discos could do some like maybe tomato girl summer. We did talk about that. And you could do something kind of fun and Italian and like tomato-y themed instead of just like the boring spaghetti and meatballs. So I actually found a spaghetti and meatball costume on Pinterest that is absolutely brilliant, you guys. Uh, So again, check out our stories because I'll share a visual component of this. But they took the old-fashioned mops, you know, like the heavy yarn mops, and they made the dress part, the like noodle part out of that. And then they attached the little brown balls. And it is absolutely genius for spaghetti and meatballs. So I thought we upped it with the Discover. We found you a good costume you could do for that. I also took their Oreo and upped it and said, make it a couple's costume and do like Oreos and milk. I think that would be really cute. Um, they also had taco and I was like, instead of taco, I think like chips and queso or chips and salsa would be kind of a fun one. Like you could have like a salsa-y dress and your husband could be like a chip and that would be hysterical. Like I think there's some good combos in there that you could one up their suggestions. There was also a group, I don't know, this a bunch of girls in my sorority did this, but they went as different Taco Bell sauce packages. And I thought that was hysterical. And I was like, that would be a good one still and like a fairly easy one to this day. I found a really cute one I've never thought of before. And it is uh, the circus animals, you know, those like pink and white crackers that you see. Oh, they eat. suggested that one. Oh, did they? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how you would do that. So what did they do? Oh, it's so cute. I found again, an image I'll share on Pinterest, but they took basically like pom-pom little pom-pom balls that are all the bright colors. And they glued those to, you know, one girl was in white and one girl was in pink. And then they had like little puff, um, like ear pieces they wore. And they also like cut out the animal crackers to hold. So people really got the impression. And I was like, that is so fun and cute too. I also think that would be really cute. The picture was of like two college girls, but I think it would be such a cute, like mother daughter costume for any of the moms still looking for like a last minute one. You guys could easily throw this costume together. I'm not going to lie. I was going through my sorority archives for this article, finding costumes of what people did. And we did have a date dash that was Candyland. So every single person was dressed as some kind of candy. And there were some hilarious costumes. So what I went as, um, I had one of my dates was named Mike. And my friend's had like his best friend was her date. And so they went as Mike and Ike's. And then I went as a hot tamale. (laughs) And then... Three of my girlfriends did the three musketeers and they were just dressed as knights, but there was three of them. And I was like, okay, there was some pretty clever things in there. So, but like hot tamale and Mike and Ike's were pretty easy. You just like picked a color. Like I had a red dress. And so I was that. And so I was like, those are, if you're trying to like look for something to just like skate by, like I got dressed, but I didn't maybe go over the top. I was like, those are the costumes for you. All right. Well, there is your ideas for some really great costumes leading into Halloween weekend. Yeah, and have a great, you know, Halloween weekend, you guys. Yeah, stay safe out there. Mm -hmm. Have fun with your kids. So our next sponsor we want to thank is Good Ranchers. And their their commercial for today is kind of fun. It's Trick or Meat. And you want to know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's really funny. I should read the whole thing. It's hysterical. (laughs) I mean, normally you and I just ad-lib, but they actually did such a cute ad copy. Um, but it's basically ditch the mystery meat in the meat aisle and know uh, who your meat comes from by buying directly from Good Ranchers. I also want to plug their pumpkin spice bacon. Do not sleep on that. Go out there and get that ordered before it is done for the season. Um, 
but yes, as good ranchers, we love to shout them out because it is American meat delivered. You can know exactly where your meat comes from. That is American produced and raised right here in the United States and butchered right here in the United States. And it is not just beef, you guys. I think we instantly, that is the animal protein that comes to mind, but they also have chicken, they have pork, they have seafood. So even if you have a freezer full of one of the animal proteins, I would highly consider shopping the other animal proteins that you are missing. Yeah. So that is goodranchers.com to be able to order, um, enter your subscription and be sure to enter the code discover for $30 off any box. That is also free shipping. So again, go to goodranchers.com and use our code discover for $30 off your box plus free shipping. All right, you guys, we're getting into this. This is a this is a big one. The last and third article to discover this week. Title, Arkansas orders Chinese-owned seed producer Syngenta to sell U.S. farmland. Arkansas ordered Syngenta to sell 160 acres of farmland in the U.S. state within two years on Tuesday because the company is Chinese-owned, drawing a sharp rebuke from the global seed producer. This was one that was sent in a lot. So I feel like there uh, was a lot of interest in us covering it. And I'm actually glad that we dived into it because I learned a lot about about uh, Syngenta. So it is owned by ChemChina, which is a Chinese state-owned company, but it is headquartered in Switzerland. And I thought that was very interesting and relevant to this conversation uh, that not only is this owned by like a person in China, but it is actually owned by a Chinese state-owned company. Yeah, I actually learned that um, there are four big corporations that we're familiar with when it comes to seed, BASF, Bayer, um, Syngenta, and Corteva. And a couple of them are also foreign-owned, which I was not like really aware of. Uh, Bayer is Germany, Syngenta is Chinese. Uh, BASF is actually, I think, publicly owned. And then I couldn't figure Corteva out. I think it might be US-owned, but I'm not entirely sure. I know there's a disco listening right now that knows for sure. So go ahead and message us in so we can correct that. But when I was trying to, to get to the bottom of it, it was kind of confusing. It was wild, all of the names and companies and countries that are behind all this. Like um, Syngenta was founded in uh, 2000, but it was actually a merger of an agrochemical business um, that was a part of AstraZeneca, which I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that's a pharmaceutical company. And I know they're all connected. Like Zoetis used to be a part of Pfizer. Like they all are like breakoffs of other company or mergers of other, other companies. But reading through this article really reminded me of how much interconnected they all are. But you also mentioned all the different companies, seed companies and pesticides companies, like the big four. It did make me wonder who was really behind this. Like we're all like, oh, it, we want American made, American owned. And in my mind, if I was one of those other big four, I'd be like, great, let's just push out one of the competition gives more room for us. Like, I don't know that this solves the problem of companies not being foreign owned. Like the in this particular article, we are talking about 160 acres of land in mm-hmm. Arkansas. That is such a small amount of land when the bigger issue in my mind is how large these companies are and how multinational they are. So that is one thing that Luke and I were actually having conversation about is that this rule that they put in place, which we'll dive into the backstory in a second, more information around it. But this rule that was put in place was not intended for 160 acres of a research seed farm. You know, it is to prevent thousands and thousands of acres being owned by other companies. And so there's a really great soundbite I actually want to talk about, too, from a disco that kind of is this thread of thought as well. But going back to like laying some foundation, there was this law called um, 636 that banned nine enemy countries from owning farmland in Arkansas. And so what uh, Arkansas did was finally enact upon that. So on one hand, I think this headline is absolutely kind of nothing new. I mean, you know, farm groups and lawmakers have 
been increasingly scrutinizing foreign land ownership, all in the name of, you know, national security, I feel like for months, if not, you know, years now, like we have been looking at this, we're having an eye on it. But on the other hand, I do think this is something, you know, like this is the first of its kind because Arkansas was able to enact on this state law that they passed um, and prohibit basically China from owning this and making Sagenta sell it. Do you think that this is really about like U.S. ownership? To me, some of it as I was reading it and some of the sound bites from the governor, it felt a little bit like a PR stunt from the governor, like get people in her state riled up to get behind her, get her reelected. And maybe that maybe I'm way off there. But part of me just felt like it just didn't feel like it was as what is the word I'm looking for? Like, I don't know, true to heart as it was being like laid out in the headlines, kind of like it wasn't as like pro-American as I think the follow through actually will be. No, I absolutely think it was political. There was actually a comment um, from a disco. So we put up a reel on Sunday. And if you guys want to go check it out, there's actually really great dialogue going on right now. There's a ton of thought, um, people putting thoughts into the comments. But one of the discos said, I like the idea of American soil being owned by non-enemy countries, but I somewhat feel like this was a political stunt. There are so many Chinese-owned companies doing business in the States, and there are likely many ways for Syngenta to still operate without a flinch. Um, and I think it goes back to what we said. Like, this was a seed research, which is actually pretty important, and it makes sense that they're doing research where they are. Like, you can't do research back in China to try and implement in, like, a different environment. Um, and so to push out this 160 acres of this seed research – I do think it was more of like a statement than it was actually like intention of American ownership, probably. Yeah, I mean, it's grabbing a lot of the headlines. Uh, my thing is we talk a lot about imports and exports. We, you know, we have this is not the first time we talked about China owning farmland, even on this podcast, like it is always in the news. And I did stop and think like, how will China feel or other countries that maybe we like end up, you know, withdrawing their um, like leases or permits or whatever, or land ownership? How will they feel about, you know, then importing U.S. products? And so I have the top five purchasers of U.S. goods in exports in 2022 were Canada, Mexico, China, Japan, and the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of billions of dollars. I mean, like a trillion dollars of exported goods going to these countries that are ag related. And so I think it's something we do have to keep in mind that like we are a global market and we are sending our goods other places too. And we do have to all kind of like work together. (laughs) I like laugh as I say that, but I mean, it's true. Like we do need to figure out how to work together. So it's like a 160 acre piece of land in Arkansas where we want to like you know, put our flag in the ground and say like enough's enough. I don't know. And and I say that while being like so pro like American owned, American owning our land, like owning our food processes, being, you know, a food sovereign nation. But we also have to take into account how much money in our economy is due to exports. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's like two camps for this. And it's, I don't actually think it's usually the two camps are like polar opposite of views of each other. And I think that's not the case for this situation. I feel like there is the extreme camp that is like really for this, you know, foreign ownership is a bad thing. We, we cannot allow it. There's a lot of concern about food security, uh, protecting military base is like, they're just get foreign ownership out like us, us, us. And then I feel like there's kind of the middle camp where the people are like, okay, yeah, like we're, we're in support of like us ownership and we're for this, but this is much more complicated than just like, we're going to say no to, you know, the absolute rules of like zero order ownership, because there is a lot of ripples effects of like, well, what if people did that to America? What does that look like, you know, with other sectors? Like, what does this actually mean if we're going to go back to like, um, you know, 
all USA. I, I don't even know if that's like possible. Like the, all the seed companies, most of them were foreign owned. Like, why isn't there a big US seed company? You know? So it's like very complicated. Yeah. And I think something to keep in mind, I actually love like going back to these facts to kind of like ground me in what's going on in the world is that foreign persons held an interest in approximately 40 million acres in the United States. That sounds like a lot. 40 million is a lot, but it was actually about 3% of all privately held land or about 1.8 of all land in the United States. And China has less than 1% of that land. So less than 1% of 2% of United States land. Canadian investors hold about 31% of all foreign-owned land. So I just think it's worth putting that into perspective a little bit. I mean, I feel like Canada's been in the news a lot lately, too. Mexico, we've had disagreements about, about, like, GMO corn. Like, it's also important to remember, it's we don't have a perfect, like, we there are issues maybe with every country or disagreements or everything. And we have to, like, put it into perspective a little bit about how much each of those countries owns in the United States and what their stake is in the United States. Yeah, the realities of China ownership is definitely, I think, misrepresented or blown out of proportion. Not to say there isn't like concern at the root of it, but I think people can run wild with like China in the headline. So I want to read this comment that a disco put on the reel from Sunday. She said, as a professional in the seed industry, Arkansas representatives made this sound like something it's not. The U.S. sector of Syngenta Seed owns the land. Nothing sketchy was happening here. In fact, very important work was, is happening there. The land was being used for seed trialing. As someone who has run and attended seed trials all over the U.S., the information they provide is critical, especially for that region. Worldwide seed breeding companies that separate or operate outside the U.S., own countless acres across the U.S. for these purposes. If every state were to follow suit, this could really hurt U.S. growers and even world food suppliers, really. There's more to it than appears on the surface. As there always is, right? There's always more than appears on the surface. And I think this is a complicated issue. I go back to the point that like exactly what she said, there's important research being done that we need. We always talk about how we need more money being invested in ag and food and you know technology in this space while also I am fully aware of understanding the implications of like people have their feelings about like China and other countries like owning running companies in the United States being a part of this research and so it's like it's just not black and white yeah I forgot to say her name it was Melissa save so I want to make sure I give her credit so thank you for writing that in Melissa and I just think we have to be careful on like which companies we're saying yes to and which we're saying no to and how that plays out like geopolitically across the country or across the world, not across the country, across the world. And I also think what complicates this is like a state by state thing. But I think my final thoughts are kind of like, I guess I don't like when politicians use something like this to like further their agenda. And it's really at its heart may not be about ag at all or be about what the headlines are making out to be. And that's where I'm really frustrated with this headline is It's just not quite all as it seems in the one second soundbite. All right. Well, that kind of wraps us up for this week's articles, but do not leave. You guys need to stick around and listen to our interview with Hudek talking about the future of food, exactly what we are ending this conversation on. Um, Listen to that interview and see, you know, what American companies are doing to disrupt our food system and uh, really shake things up with new technology and new research. So listen to this interview and we hope you guys enjoy it. 
Jeremy Javers is Vice President of Technology at Hudeck. He has his formal training in leadership and chemistry and a doctorate in industrial microbiology. He served as Director of Fermentation at Biozyme, Inc. prior to joining Hudeck nearly a year ago. He has extensive experience in leading teams and developing products for ethanol and animal health companies and a mini MBA from Rutgers University Business School. So with that, Jeremy, welcome to Discover Ag. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, after reading that um, resume, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little intimidated. There was a lot of uh, chemistry, bio, a lot going on. So I think we're in good hands with you sharing today um, about your company. And so I think that's where I want to start is for people who don't know, what is what is Hudeck? Everything we do basically starts from the soil, true of a lot of things. And uh, we're here in South Dakota and South Dakota is fortunate enough to have an official name of its soil, and that is Hudak soil, so that is what we're named after. So you mentioned that you guys are currently, you know, playing a role in three different sectors. You started out in one and have since, like, grown to expand and um, have influence in er- different areas. So we're going to be covering kind of the pet industry. We're going to be covering the uh, aquaculture and then also animal feed um, or human feed. But what you didn't mention is that the way you fill a space in all of those roles is through fermentation. Um, And I will be as blunt as to say that when I think of fermentation, I definitely think of human food. I think of kombucha. (laughs) Uh, That's like my, that's my go-to right there. I'm pretty sure that's fermented and that's about where I stop and end with it. So I would love, because I, I, would dare to say that, you know, Hudeck is, is built around fermentation. If you guys could um, maybe share your expertise with what that means and why it plays such a role, large role with Hudeck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fermentation is a, a key technology. It's been around since the beginning of time. Um, and um, I mean, today, when people think of fermented foods, they think of things like beer, right? Everybody likes beer. Most people like beer. Uh, yogurt, um, you know, other uh, fermented foods, kimchi, cottage cheese, uh, some pickled products are made through fermentation processes. And um, those types of fermentations are extremely important. And I've done a lot for agriculture um, throughout time. And um, what we do is we take it one step further. So we run a very uh, specific type of fermentation, um, you know, technically, and probably won't mean a lot to everybody, but we call it aerobic fermentation. So we supply air to a fungus uh, inside of a tank, essentially, um, versus these other types of fermentations we were talking about where we don't supply air uh, to make beer and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think uh, the fermentation is a, it's, it's what makes us uniquely different in this space is the type of fermentation that uh, we bring to the market. And um, we use a fungus Uh, In our fermentation, if you think about beer, you think about, you know, yeast uh, making beer, we use a fungus in our fermentation. And uh, I like to think about it, you know, the fungal cultures that we use. You know, if you think about a yeast, uh, you know, packing up its toolbox and going to work, a yeast just has a smaller toolbox uh, in the environment that it's in than what our fungus has. And, um, you know, with the type of fermentation we do and the type of organism that we use in that fermentation, uh, we have the capability to really bring a lot of value to these different uh, ingredients. So you're essentially adding fermented products then to whether it be uh, animal feed or we've talked about like aqua feed, so fish for uh, food 
for fish and then pet food. So explain a little more. So we're taking this fermented product and we're adding it to these different like feed ingredients for these different types of, you know, agriculture in essence to make a more nutrient dense product to make a more nutrient rich? Like, is it digestibility? Like what, what all are we adding and how is it improving the feed quality of these um, ingredients? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about what we're doing, we're taking the things that farmers are making, right? Corn, soybeans, uh, canola. I mean, there's a lot of different types of uh, seeds that are made by farmers and, you know, for a long time, grinding those uh, seeds up and feeding them to animals was, uh, the processing that we applied to those feeds. And, you know, I like to take the example of, I mean, I grew up on a farm, we grew corn and soybeans and had pigs. So you know, every year I, I could remember, uh, you know, going through harvest and we'd hauled our corn and soybeans in the same truck that we hauled the pigs to market in. And I can remember, you know, playing in this stuff and I knew we used a little bit of it in our animal feed, but I always wondered, you know, what, what happens to all the rest of this corn we haul the elevator. Um, so what we're doing with fermentation is we're basically taking that corn that's got fat and protein and starch and all sorts of different things, and we're separating it. And then we're taking those different separated products, and then we're basically applying fermentation to it, which does a lot of cool things, right? It can make the protein easier to turn into meat for the animal. Um, the fermentation can provide nutrients, uh, to the bacteria that are inside of the gut of the animal that you're feeding to help them keep them healthier, help them convert those uh, products that were, were convert the, the corn protein that's in there, help them convert that to meat better. Um, and some of the things that the fermentation uh, creates while we're sort of chewing away on these corn and soybean type of um, uh, feeds is it also makes products that can help uh, sort of act like antibiotics, but not be antibiotics for an animal. So it can help them to fend off diseases and things like that better. Yeah, it's so interesting. When I think of fermentation, I definitely don't associate it with agriculture. And so it's really neat to see how you guys are really um, running with that uh, process and using it to kind of disrupt um, essentially the industry. Because like um, I know with your fish feed, you're using soybean Correct. Like our soy, soy meal has always been used for fish feed. And you guys are just kind of, like you said, applying this new process and almost um, presenting it in a different way. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, soybean meal and, and more specifically, soy protein concentrates, uh, processed soybean meals have been used for a long time in these feed ingredients. And again, I think it's always important when you, you know talk about the business that you're in is you should really understand what makes you sort of uniquely different out there. And applying this type of fermentation to the soybean meal to get it into a condition that, you know, makes it worth worthy in a, in a fish ingredient. Um, the thing that makes us uniquely different is bringing that fermentation and, and not only impacting the protein digestibility and all those kind of good things, but also bringing these things that can help the bacteria in the gut of the animal, uh, as well as, um, you know, help the animal just to grow and live a better life, right? I mean, all farmers are either stewards of the land or stewards for the animals that they take care of. And I think anything that we can do to, you know, help do that better. And at the end of the day, make, make a little more money off of it is, is good. And um, applying these types of technologies to commodities like corn and soybeans has done a tremendous amount of good. I worked in the ethanol industry, for example, for 20 years. 
um, in the early 2000s, you know, we brought several billion bushels of corn into processing and ethanol plants and added, you know, you know, multiple dollars per bushel uh, to, to the value of that grain by processing it more. We also added a lot of really good jobs in rural communities for folks. And I think this is just a natural progression. I believe applying this type of fermentation to soybeans and corn will have that same impact again. We have touched on cattle, fish, pets. And in my mind, those are obviously like all very different animals. And just, you know, obviously how they digest food is very different from, you know, monogastric to a ruminant animal and then obviously fish as well. How do these different animals you know, react to the fermented foods? How does it benefit them? I mean, you, you've mentioned that it can act almost like as antibiotic in protecting them against different things. Like how do each of them react to the fermented foods? Sure. Well, I think number one is just conversion of, let's say conversion of the protein and that ingredient into meat. So we've got studies that show, you know, we can get up to 10 to 15% better conversion of what we're feeding the animal into meat versus making waste. So that's a win-win for everybody, right? You're making, you're utilizing the the crops better. Uh, you're making meat more efficiently and effectively. The other things that it can do are, for example, in shrimp. So, I mean, instead of harvesting a lot of shrimp out of the ocean, there's people out there farming shrimp right now. And I think it's one of the main benefits that uh, we have there is, number one, it's a good digestible animal feed for those shrimp. Um, but on top of that, um, you know, they, they get diseases just like every other animal. And one of those diseases is called Vibrio. And uh, this product has been shown to help shrimp fend off Vibrio uh, infection, which at the end of the day helps the shrimp live a better life um, and helps the farmer make more money off of growing the shrimp because they, they have less loss through death. And when they harvest a tank of shrimp, they get more shrimp per tank. Something I never thought of, shrimp getting sick <laughs> until yeah, this episode. The shrimp get sick. Yeah, I think there's a, good, there's a good meme or a cartoon or something out there for that, I'm certain. I'm certain there is. And if there wasn't before, there probably is now. Um, yeah. I want to pivot a little bit because so far we've focused a lot on, you know, the, I guess, nutritional benefit of this fermentation process for the animal itself. Um, but I know another pillar to your guys' company and your products is the environmental component. And I do feel Absolutely. like it's pretty common for people to say, like, our product is better for the environment. Like, that's a slogan a lot of people will say. Um, so if you could break that down and let us know, like, what that actually means, why you guys say that, um, and how you can, you know, you're practically seeing it um, out out on the different, um, I guess, in the different uses, the categories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about providing the animal with a better ingredient in their in their feed so that they can convert say the protein more efficiently to meat the opposite of that is um, taking that feed and consuming it and excreting it out as manure um, and and when we do that we have more waste to clean up now that depends on if you're talking about a fish right fish basically have to live in their toilet bowl right um, so you want to make as little excrement as possible the fish so you have less water to treat and, and less environmental impact. Um, so that's one of the ways we do it. Another way we do it is we look at other nutrients like phosphorus. And, um, you know, we try to make the phosphorus very highly digestible because if you if the animal doesn't use the phosphorus that we're feeding it, 
again, it is going to end up as a waste product and then cause problems in the environment um, or, or it will cost additional cost to the farmer to have to treat before they can get rid of that uh, waste product. Those are a couple of ways that um, we, we uh, look at the environmental uh, benefits and I mean, the other things are we just try to be good stewards of how we process and looking at the electricity and natural gas and all those things that we use to turn these corn and soybeans and different, um, you know, meals into a, a more uh, environmentally friendly animal feed ingredient. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the supporting like communities as well. You know, I think one thing with agriculture is if we find a product that is not being like properly utilized or a waste product, we in ag are really good about coming up with a solution for it. Like, it, it, you know, something like this, it, it supports so many other like related industries. It's it can be good for you know, the environment good for the cattle, but it supports the allied, like the greater allied industries within this organization that like, um, you know, you talked about like on the ethanol side, like you can, if we're increasing the value of products, that's really important for ag throughout that supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when we talk about related industries, I mean, again, it all sort of boils down to rule number one of business in order to make these things work, right? And that's, you have to make money to, to keep adding value to the business or to the sector that you're working in. So, you know, if we take a look at this, I mean, number one, if you add a couple of dollars a bushel to corn or soybeans, number one, you're gonna help the farmers stay in business, right? You're gonna give them the, the means that they need to keep uh, progressing the technology on their own operations. And I think, you know, just in my lifetime, it's been pretty amazing to see, you know, how far we've come in, in ag processing. And I think a lot of that is is due to how do we bring value back to those um, products that the farmers are making. Um, so that's, that's a huge part of it. Um, there's a lot of other things sort of, if you look at related industries that we can impact. So this tool that we're talking about of fermentation, just putting this tool of fermentation out into these communities, for example, you know, not only are we getting an extra $2 per bushel for the crop, we're getting the extra $2 per bushel for the crop because of the processing that's being applied. And if we can place the tools that are bringing that value into these rural communities, then that money stays in those rural communities as well on the processing side. And I think that's just as important, um, making those jobs and, and keeping that money local. So I'm so curious hearing you talk about a couple different things now. Was the genesis behind Hudeck, I mean, oftentimes we'll create something because we see a problem, right? That's like the origin of a lot of innovation and companies. Were you guys, was it created because you guys were seeing these inefficiencies or, you know, what was, I guess, like the driving decision behind starting Hudeck in the beginning? Well, I think the, you know, some of the primary drivers behind doing this are number one, you know, the founder of this company, I, I was actually uh, his first PhD student, uh, Bill Gibbons and uh, Mike Brown. I was Bill's uh, PhD student when they're uh, working on developing this stuff. And, you know, I know Bill well, and, and I think one of the things he's uh, primarily driven by is bringing value back to agriculture. So I think that's a key driver is looking at uh, what sector you're going to work in. Um, so I think that was important. I mean, then you have to look at the opportunity. And if we look at the opportunity and, you know, how do we satisfy rule number one of business here and bring value? If we look at what people are eating these days in terms of meat, um, you know, if you're going to feed, let's say if you're going to feed a, um, 
a cow, I mean, that uh, animal feed ingredient basically needs, needs to have, or the animal feed itself needs to have 10 to 20% protein in it. And if we look at soybeans at 36% protein and corn at 9% protein, it's great. You can bring those ingredients into that cattle diet, just grind it up and feed it to them. And for a long time, that's what we did to process uh, soybeans and corn. When you look at swine, those animals are taking 13 to say 25% protein in their diet. Now we have to start doing some things to additionally raise the protein and do some separation in corn and soybeans to meet those needs. Poultry, you take another step up where you get up to like 30% protein needs in the mixed ration. And then when you go to fish, you get all the way up to 50% protein requirements in the in the total diet where you can't start from nine and, and have a large portion of that in that animal feed and get to a 50% protein. So we have to process it. So I think, you know, as people start eating more of the meats of the poultry and the fish, right, the demand for those feed products keeps growing. You know, some of the feed products or the feed ingredients that were going into those products were things like fish meal. Okay? With everything that's going on in the world right now, fish meal supply is dropping and the demand for fish meal, it keeps going up because of these, um, these uh, requirements and these animal feed ingredients. So, as that margin gets bigger between, say, soybean meal and fish meal, that's what gives us the opportunity to then go out and apply this process and bring this technology to those uh, feedstocks. I saw a graph the other day that was a ch showing the change in the type of meat consumption just here in the United States over the last 50 years. And, you know, you see a graph like that and you do think about like the end result, right? Like, we, you know, we've obviously started consuming a lot more chicken. And so you think, oh, there's going to be more chicken, obviously, a lot of more poultry in the country. Um, but you don't think about like what happens after that always like this, like you don't think about like, okay, how are we going to feed those chickens? What type of feed do they need? What type of quality protein do they need? What percentage of protein do they need in their diet? And all of the like chain reaction that happens when we have such a massive shift in food choice um, choices at our grocery store over, you know, not a very long period of time when you really think about it. And so it's, it is fascinating to hear you talk about and then, you know, from the side of the world, what's going on in the world and how easy or not easy it is to get access to these types of feed to be able to feed, you know, I, I probably said the word feed, I feel like five times in that <laughs> sentence, but it's a beer drinking to, game. To feed these animals. I know it definitely is uh, drink every time I say the word feed. Like um, but no, there is just a lot more that goes into play here and that you needed to fill that gap with a product that was, you know, sustainable and all the things that we've already talked about here that is good for the animals, that is improving their digestion, improving all the things that we talked about. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, uh, that's all extremely important uh, as well. And, um, you know, feeding these animals is one big part of what's driving that. And if you think about the other thing is the world's getting smaller as well. Okay. So if you think about export markets as well, I think, you know, in ag, export markets are extremely important to us, right? I mean, we over we, we grow food for the world in the U.S., for example. When we ship, say, soybeans and corn out, I mean, people want that for, say, the protein. So we go back again to corn or soybean, for example, at 35% protein and people in you know, Southeast Asia are interested in that. So soybeans for the protein, our process really does three things, right? 
Number one, it concentrates the protein from, say, 36% to 75% protein. So right off the bat, I mean, number one, you just cut your shipping costs in half to get that protein across the world. You're burning less diesel fuel in a train or a truck to get it to port. You're burning less fuel to ship it across the ocean to the other part of the world. And you're essentially cutting your shipping costs in half and, and making the products that we make right here in the U.S. more accessible to the rest of the world and opening up markets. Um, you know, the other two things that we do is we, you know, we bring value in the form of what we call prebiotics uh, that help to feed sort of the bacteria inside of the gut of the animal. And then we make those postbiotics that help the animal uh, function better in terms of immunity and gaining weight and just being healthier overall as well. So I think that's another important thing to understand is, you know, those are the three things that we sort of focus on. Uh, here and uh, it can have other benefits, you know, as you know, in shipping costs, for example, that are maybe something that you don't think about on the logistics side of things. Yeah, I was going to say this has um, honestly been a conversation of a lot of things I don't think of every single day. And just like Tina Tara said, there's the ripple effects of um, what's so fascinating, what one, you know, fermentation process could do as you start looking outward for, um, honestly, like you said, rest completely down the rest of the supply chain. Um, I feel like we've kind of been giving a bird's eye view of Hudak right now, kind of talking about, um, you know, it, in, a, in a more general base, um, can we maybe hone down a little bit and have you talk about like maybe more of the specific products or help us better understand um, like who you, who would be buying from you, who you're selling to, like um, what products you actually have under the Hudeck umbrella? Sure. So, I mean, the, some of the primary products we have going to the fish feed markets and that is a worldwide market. So, I mean, then you have to think about, we have certain customers that uh, don't like uh, genetically modified uh, products in their ingredients. So we process non-GM uh, soybeans, which, you know, we have a local farmers here that make the non-GM soybeans. They get processed through a local plant to extract the oil and we get that meal and uh, process it through our, our plant here in Volga, South Dakota. And then that gets up into the, you know, the Scandinavia area where they need non-GM uh, feed ingredients, or we can process the regular GM uh, soybean meal, and then that gets sent out as a fish meal down into, you know, South America and essentially all over the world. And, you know, that that's one of the products that we make is the ME Pro. We have another product that comes out of the process um, that goes into things like cattle feed, and uh, we call that, uh, you know, that's our, our soluble stream. There's another really interesting thing about the soluble stream as well. Um, Maybe you've heard or talked about how nitrogen is being replaced on corn these days, um, you know, with things like uh, the pivot bios and the joint bios and things like that of the world who are making what we call ag biologics. So these this other stream that we make, we've also found can be very helpful to actually grow up the ag biologics um, that we use on the fields, uh, you know, the following year as fertilizers. So that's another one of the products that we have. And I mean, you want to talk about another great way to keep money in the in the local uh, uh, community. I mean, start giving the community the tools to produce their own fertilizers. Um, so we got a fish feed. We've got this soluble stream that goes either you know, cattle or has some other fermentation purposes associated with it. Um, we also have a product called Protegere. Um, that is a, a product that's specifically made to go into pet food um, for uh, an ingredient for cats and dogs. And then we're a little bit earlier on, but human food ingredients take a bit um, longer to you know get through the, 
the whole product development cycle, but we're also working on protein ingredients for say pastas and, uh, you know, protein bars and all sorts of different products that we're looking at in, in, um, um, human food formulations. What a wide variety. I feel like that is one thing I'm living with from this conversation is such a variety of different ingredients that you guys are able to supply to. And I love what you said about the fertilizer. I feel like if you've been watching the news at all um, with what's going on, you know, across the world is, you know, fertilizer production and not having access to that. So being able to give people the means to be able to produce that locally, um, especially in our rural economies. Like if you have been in a rural town in the United States, I mean, it may not be thriving. Uh, And so being able to give, you know, the opportunity to be able to bring these kind of industries into those communities, I feel like is so vital, so important um, to really, you know, the heartbeat of rural America there. Uh, So a lot going on um, for you guys. Uh, The the pasta part, really. Uh, I was not expecting you to say that you're adding protein to pasta. <laughs> she might Ugh. not like beer, but she likes pasta. <laughs> I do. I was like, oh my gosh, a high protein pasta? Like, sign me up. That sounds like <laughs> healthy. <laughs> the benefit of, of all these different products is, you know, at the end of the day, what are we really doing is we're putting tools into these communities. And I mean, it's really about teaching and training the people that will ultimately end up having, you know, what are really good jobs um, to learn how to use these tools to take those, you know, raw materials that the agriculture is producing in those areas and learn how to turn them into finished goods where they can keep more of that money in their local communities. Yeah. What I kept thinking this, Tara was thinking about pasta, but what I kept thinking about this whole time is one thing that her and I often talk about on this podcast is how integrated, you know, agriculture is, you know, everyday farmer and rancher to so many things in society that we don't think about. And Tara already alluded that you guys serve, you know, very vast industries, right? When you think of pet food, you necessarily don't think of like shrimp farming and you necessarily don't think of like pasta, human feed either, but at the core of it, there's the same component, right? That, that, soy um, protein. And so it is just a good reminder at how, um, I mean, to toot agriculture's horn, how you know important and integrated we are into like so many everyday products of our everyday life. We really don't have any other choice but to keep getting better, right? The population on the planet continues to grow and, you know, we need to feed people. And that's one thing the U.S. is really good at is feeding people. So we're really good at uh, growing the crops. And I think we can be the best in the world at um, processing those crops and and, and getting that food in the right form to the way it's going to benefit people the most as well. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I feel like that is a good place for us to close out. Thank you, Jeremy, for coming on today. Thank you to Hudek for sponsoring this um, podcast and sharing with us a little bit about what you guys do in so many different sectors of our food system. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, hope you guys have a great day and um, I look forward to hearing more out of you guys. We will put all of Hudek's information in the show notes, you guys. So if you're interested in learning more even about this conversation or if you're interested in reaching out to them and inquiring more from them personally, you can find all Hudek's information in our show notes. And thank you for discovering with us. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.